The book of Genesis has been called a book of beginnings. We read of God creating the heavens and the earth and all things therein. In verse 26, the Bible tells us that God made man in his own image and in his own likeness. In chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible would tell us that God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. God placed the crown of his creation in a place called the Garden of Eden. It was in that utopian setting that God said to the first couple that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, look, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Chapter 3 reveals to us Adam and Eve transgressed that divine command. As a result of that, Death made its way into the world. Now, God had said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. There was a death that took place on that occasion. You remember the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins of animals. And I think, by way of implication, those animals were slain. Atonement was made for the first couple, by the shedding of blood. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God in His great omniscience, the fact that He is all-knowing, begins to unveil what we often call His scheme of redemption, the promise of redemption. And really what you have is the promised seed. Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15 is an announcement about God's answer to the problem that occurred in the garden. That problem was sin, as you well know. And the Bible tells us that the consequences of sin ultimately is spiritual death, Romans 6.23. God made a promise thousands of years ago that literally changed the world. When Adam and Eve transgressed God's law in the garden, that was a time of bleakness, fear, hopelessness. And yet with the announcement of that promised seed, there was the promise of life, the promise of hope on that darkened day. And so I want you to think with me for a moment or two about the promise that changed the landscape of the world that we live in. First thing that I want to call your attention to has to do with the promised seed. Now again, bear in mind that God, in His omniscience, created man, instilling within Him the ability to make choices in this life. We have not been made as robots. God doesn't pull our strings. But rather, the God of heaven has given us the freedom to exercise our own will. Adam and Eve had that opportunity to exercise the freedom of choice. Sadly, they made the wrong choice. And there have been a lot of people that have made poor choices since that day. But God recognized that man, given the ability to make choices, would at some point in time make the wrong choice, thereby bringing sin into the world. So there would 
be the need for redemption, a Savior, someone to mediate between God and mankind, the one that would ultimately be the mediator of the world was Jesus. Now Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, that God chose us in Him, listen to Him, before the foundation of the world. God had this marvelous plan in place. And you remember John in the Revelation talks about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Talking about Jesus. So God had this plan in place when Adam and Eve transgressed His law immediately. That plan began to be unveiled. And so you have, first and foremost, the promised seed. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you shall bruise his head, and he shall bruise your heel. So here we have in seed form a promise. And we can talk about the mystery and the majesty of this promise. When God made this announcement, He began pointing toward Calvary thousands of years in the future. With regard to the mystery of this promised seed, you remember in Genesis chapter 4 at verse 1, following the birth of Cain, here's what Eve said. I have gotten a man from the Lord. I think what she was saying is that there's a connection between this child and the promise that was made in chapter 3, verse 15. The mystery of that promised seed. And so bit by bit, piece by piece, God began unveiling His redemptive plan. And unbeknown to the human family, they didn't necessarily understand the full implications of that promise. Oh, but they were looking forward to the promised seed. As Eve said in the long ago, I've gotten a man from the Lord. So hundreds of years later, we read about a man by the name of Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah's writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he said, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. I don't think Isaiah fully understood the import of everything that he penned. I know that there were people hundreds of years later that still didn't understand the full import of the promised Messiah. For example, in Acts chapter 8, you remember the eunuch. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53 when Philip joins him in the eunuch. The Bible says that the eunuch asked Philip, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other? And the Bible says that beginning of that same scripture, Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. So there was the mystery of that promised seed. But not just the mystery, but the majesty of the promise. When we turn over to the book of Matthew, some 39 times the word begot is used. 
concerning the seed line of Christ. And you remember going back to Genesis chapter 12, God called on a man by the name of Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation. And it would be through Abraham and his descendants that Jesus would come. He said, I'm going to make you, make of you a great nation. He said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. In you shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, God was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God asked, shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm about to do? Since he will become a great and mighty nation. And in him shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That promise realized in Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew provides us with an account of the seed line, the royal seed line of the Christ. In verse 16, the Bible says that Jacob begot Joseph, who was married to Mary, or who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus called Christ. And then, of course, we have the announcement made by the angel to Mary that she would bring forth a son, his name would be called Jesus, and he said, he shall save his people from their sins. That's an amazing fact. So, you go back and you look at the record. Sometimes people question the virgin birth. What's all, what's all that about? Listen, the virgin birth is a cardinal doctrine of the New Testament. As Tyler said a minute ago, the birth and the death of Jesus are linked together because the angel said in the long ago concerning the Christ, the one who's called Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to die. Now, he was not born of a virgin to be the Son of God. He was born of a virgin because he was the Son of God. He had an earthly mother. That was Mary. But his father was God. And as the Bible says, that which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. This was the time of year, as Brother Dio noted in our prayer just a moment ago, for the offering. It's a time of family and friends and relationships. It's a time of giving, and we're grateful for all those great blessings. And there are a lot of people in our world today, they're thinking about the birth of Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. Nothing is said about the day that Jesus was born by way of a birthday. Don't know the date. Historically speaking, in all probability, Jesus was born either in the spring or fall of the year. But be that as it may, when we talk about the birth of Jesus, we ought to be grateful. Because without His birth, there would be no death. And without His death, there would be no hope. Now, there's nothing in the Scriptures that tell us that we are to memorialize that birth. We are told to remember His death. 
But when people focus upon the birth of Jesus at this point in time of the year, it provides us with a segue to talk about Jesus. I may not know the specific date that Jesus was born upon, but I know why He came. And I know the purpose for Him coming into this world, and that's a wonderful thing. So let's just think for a moment or two about the purpose of the seed. There are two reasons I believe Jesus came to earth. Number one, to crush the serpent. Who was responsible for the spiritual death that took place in the garden? The serpent was, wasn't he? Didn't the serpent beguile Mother Eve? She transgressed the law of God. Adam took of that forbidden fruit, ate, and he too, guilty before Almighty God. And so you remember what God said to the first couple. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And there has been an adversary that God's seed has been dealing with since the garden. It is a long-standing struggle that will not end until Jesus comes. But the Lord Jesus came to crush the serpent. The Bible says He would bruise His head. In other words, He would crush the head of the serpent. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 12 at verse 31. Jesus said, Now is the ruler or prince of this world judged. When Jesus Christ came to earth, died on Calvary, rose again the third day, He delivered a fatal blow to the serpent, that is to the devil. Matter of fact, John would say in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 8, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested. Why? That He might destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus came to earth, lived among men, lived a perfect life, died on Calvary's cross, raised the third day, He delivered a blow to the serpent from which He will never recover. The Bible says in Colossians 2 and about verse 15 that Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. The reference there, I believe, is to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that when Jesus died on Calvary, rose again the third day, He crushed the serpent. He was victorious in ancient times when a king would go and conquer a land. He would oftentimes bring the spoils of the city back. There would be times when the slaves would be marching through the streets along with all the spoils that had been taken. The picture here is of Jesus, the conquering king with Satan in tow been subjugated. So we talk about the fact that Jesus came to crush the serpent. But then there's a second thing. 
The Lord Jesus came to conquer sin. That's what the angel said in Matthew chapter 1. This child that's to be born, he'll be called Jesus. And he'll save his people from their sins. What is it that's so important that we reflect upon every first day of the week? It's the death of Jesus, isn't it? Listen, it's not a one-time thing to contemplate the birth of Jesus. It's not an annual thing. It's not an annual thing to contemplate and to reflect upon the death of Jesus. As a child of God, we ought to be grateful for those events every single day. But every first day of the week, we remind ourselves of the body that was given on Calvary for our sins. As Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That means Jesus died for you and for me. That's personal, isn't it? Not only did He give His body, but He shed sacred blood, divine blood. He poured that blood out for us. John in the book of Revelation talks about Jesus being the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. He said unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, Paul would write in Ephesians 1, 7, it's in Him, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. When Jesus died on Calvary, His heel was bruised. Oh, but it wasn't a death blow. Not like what the devil suffered. Jesus was put to death. Three days later, however, He came forth from the grave triumphing over the devil. Now, I want you to think about this too. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the Bible says, talking about Christ, He destroyed him who had the power of death. That's the devil. Who was it that liberated the human family? Go back and look at John chapter 8. When Jesus, talking to the Jews of His day, would say, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. He said that those who are living in sin, they become the bondservants of sin, they are imprisoned in a life of bondage. They may not know it, but they are. In verse 36, though, he said, If the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Do we have something to celebrate in terms of the death of Jesus? Yes, why? It's personal. He died for our sins. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he summed up the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. So, that promised seed, there was a purpose there, wasn't there? And there was a timeline involved in bringing Christ into the world. You go back and you read the prophecies that were given. And so you have the prophets pointing in distant time to the coming of Jesus. When God made the promise to Abraham, the time was about 2,000 B.C. Over the next 2,000 years, God began unfolding that redemptive plan, culminating in the death of Jesus. But Paul would say in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Go back and read Daniel chapter 9. Daniel carved out a 490-year period of history that would ultimately point to the coming of the Christ and His death on Calvary. 
God had a prophetic timeline under which he operated. And he fulfilled every single promise. And you want to talk about a promise that changed the world? The promise that was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is a promise that continues to yield dividends to the human family. Until Jesus comes, it will always bear fruit. There's a third thing I want to share with you. And that has to do with the profile of the seed. Let me call your attention to the book of Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah chapter 6, we learn something about the one of whom God had spoken in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Zechariah chapter 6, in verse 13, Zechariah said, talking about the coming of the Messiah, he said, He shall build the temple of the Lord. What temple do you think he's talking about? I think he's talking about the church. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the one that Daniel had already talked about, the one that John the Baptist would later preach about, the one that Jesus said, look, it's at hand. The very one that Jesus said, some of you standing here are not going to see death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. So God said through, through the prophet Zechariah that the branch, that being the Christ, he's going to build the temple of the Lord. And then he went on to say, He shall sit and reign on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them. What do you say? Zechariah is saying that the one to come would be both a priest and king. But you remember Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel? He said the one to come, the promised seed, would be a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And God said, I'll put my words in his mouth, and he'll speak in my name. He's talking there about Jesus. So what's the connection in the New Testament? John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman from Samaria. You remember that situation? There at Jacob's well, the Lord asked her for a drink of water. Jesus was talking about living water, not just physical water. As their conversation began to unfold, Jesus said, I want you to go and call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you've spoken well. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And she said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she said, I know that when the Messiah comes, they've been talking about worship. I know when the Messiah comes, that is, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And then Jesus said in verse 26, recorded by John, he said, I'm the Messiah. In chapter 6 of the book of John, John tells us that Jesus fed 5,000 people some 5,000 men, five barley loaves and two fish, fed a multitude of people. Listen, when they observed what he had done on that occasion, do you know what they said? Truly, this is the prophet who's come into the world. In John chapter 9, 
The man that received sight, been born blind. After he had received his sight, the religious leaders pounced on him. They wanted to know who it was that opened his eyes. He said, he's a prophet. Jesus, the prophet. Jesus, the priest. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 that Jesus is our great high priest. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true temple, which the Lord pitched and not man. Furthermore, back in chapter 7, he contrasted those high priests that would give way to death over time. But he said, this man has an unchangeable priesthood. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Who needs not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifices? For this he did once when he offered up himself. That's the high priest we're serving. And Jesus is now functioning as our great high priest. As Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, He has gone into the heavens, the Son of God. He's there making intercession for us. He sacrificed His blood on our behalf. Prophet, priest, but also a king. Zechariah the prophet. Zechariah prophesied in the time of Haggai. Their efforts were to encourage the people of God to rebuild, to finish completing the temple that had begun some 16, 17 years earlier. But you remember Zechariah said, He shall sit and reign on His throne. Well, where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of Almighty God. When the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would bring forth a child, that child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he said, he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.15, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you're a king, you have to have a kingdom, don't you? And you go back and you look at Revelation chapter 1. When John said again that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, unto Him who loved us, washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us a kingdom and priest to God. To Him be glory and dominion forever. That's the one we're serving. And so as Tyler mentioned a moment ago, When you look at the birth of Christ, you have to connect it to the death of Christ. And when you read of His birth and His death, then you read of His resurrection and the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. What was it Paul said? Who will deliver me from this body of death? O wretched man that I am. What's the answer? It's Jesus, the Son of God. Listen, Jesus is still in the saving business, isn't He? 
And as a child of God, we have the opportunity every first day of the week to remember His death for us. The Lord was interested in us. He has invested in us. And because of that, we ought to echo the words of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Paul said, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Listen, we have been gifted the blessings of Almighty God. Every spiritual blessing known to man available to us. God has not withheld anything from us that we need to be complete in His sight. So today I ask you, are you a child of the living God? Have you submitted your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords? He seated that the, the right hand of the majesty in heaven. But that same Jesus that's seated at the right hand of God will come again one day. As Paul said, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise. Are you a child of God? What would you need to do to become one of His children, to enjoy the blessings of pardon? You ought to understand that Jesus paid the ultimate price for your sins. As Paul said, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. I know you believe in Jesus. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe in Him. So my question, would you be willing to repent, to turn away from the ways of this world, and to make Jesus the Lord of your life? So you have to believe in Him. You have to repent of your sins. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. You have the opportunity to confess Him before others and then to be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. That's what they did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2, verse 38. And if you'll do that today, you can become a member of the kingdom that the prophets of old talked about, that John the Baptist said was at hand, that Jesus Himself declared was at hand, later built it and bought it with His blood. It belongs to Him today. And if you belong to Him, you're part of that church. And when He comes, guess what? You'll be numbered among the saved, Ephesians 5, 23. If you're here today and maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ, to make Him first in your life, I encourage you to do that. You know, John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?